This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Sirut Shala, who is a London-based therapist who moved to London about a decade and a half ago. In this episode, we talk about the ways in which wokeness is negatively impacting therapy and how wokeness, and we try to define what that is, actually erodes people's ability to deal with trauma in a positive way. And if you like her and her thoughts, be sure to follow her on Twitter and Instagram and links to her social media are down there in the description. So without further ado, here is Sirut Shala. Thanks for uh, being willing to express yourself in this medium. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> How yeah, long I have you been doing the, 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 the Twitter. Twitter? Yeah. Um, Twitter's really new for me, actually. I've been doing, I started Instagram last summer. Um, so just over a year. And that grew to about, I think I'm on 124,000 now. Um, yeah. And nice. I started to get quite, well, I realized two things. One, I, I, I really like building stuff. So it got really boring um, when it got big. Um, and there's all these demands on you from, from the people that follow you. And I realized that I actually really like the striving and the adversity and the getting my teeth into something. And Twitter became a bit of a a refuge. And I know that sounds really weird, but I'd had so much abuse on Instagram that Twitter just seemed like great fun and really relaxed in comparison. What, so, what's your content uh, themes it's, on it's Instagram? It's a therapy page. It's okay. a therapy page. So... Um, essentially trying to put up as much psychoeducation as I possibly can for free because a lot of people can't access therapy. Um, and I'm not a Mother Teresa. It's also for marketing. And um, and it just, it, it, I got onto Instagram really naively thinking I'd be the only therapist on there. I thought that would be quite interesting, just a therapy page on Instagram. But there was plenty of therapists on there already. Um, doing their thing and sort of plugged into this niche and I have a really sort of conflicted relationship with this niche Um, because it's very woke it's uber woke um, as therapists tend to be and um, isn't that true (laughs) and uh, and I found that that being in this niche and dealing with consumers that are uber woke and dealing with therapists that are just um, some of what what their personal philosophies seem to be are an anathema to me to, uh, as a therapist and as a person. Um, so I started to share more about resilience and more um, personal views and opinions and a little bit of... Um, anti-woke stuff and it didn't go well at all so twitter became sort of more of an outlet for that yeah one way of defining the woke is how awful they are to people who aren't woke (laughs) they they go for your throat they're there ready to rip your throat out and dismember you with no hesitation while saying you're so compassionate like they're such a Mm. weird bunch um and I think the thing that really the juxtaposition of most of these people being white from the first world, um, fairly privileged, because especially if you're in, because most of them are American or Canadian, um, especially if you're North American and you have a degree or two under your belt, you're a fairly privileged person, I'd say. Um, And them going for me as someone who grew up mostly in India um, and brown and I have, you know, very heavy trauma. I grew up in a patriarchy during a rape crisis. And I just thought, the irony of this, these people are going for me, but they think they're doing a good thing. I think that's, um, 
I think that was one of my first red, red pilling moments. Mm-hmm. Of, um, now, yeah. One thing that we can for certain say is that India, when we describe the patriarchy and mm. we describe the culture of India, it's quantifiably different than when we talk about patriarchy in, let's say, the English-speaking world, if not Europe, yeah. the West world. Uh, yeah. the, the power structures are very cemented, and the way and the disparate treatment of men and women are very distinct. Am I mm-hmm. correct in, in saying yeah. that? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, if I fill out a form or want to open a bank account, it has to be, well, I need to give the names of my nearest male kin, for example, um, and then your dad or your husband or your brother would sign off on it, for example. So it's not, I think people don't realize how different it actually is. Like for me, when women talk about the a patriarchy in terms of the West, I think it's quite laughable. I don't, I don't think there's a patriarchy here. Um, I think the way Jordan Peterson describes it of being a competence hierarchy, I can see that. Um, I think traditionally men have had more power, but there's also a lot of biological and complex reasons for that. Um, And, you know, these analyses, again, I think Jordan Peterson's talked about it, of why men make more money, they do more dangerous jobs, they don't necessarily take time out for child rearing. There's a lot of complex reasons, and it's a very low-resolution understanding to say these patriarchal, power-hungry, misogynistic men. I mean, there are misogynists, but to, to label the whole structure misogynistic is um, a misdiagnosis, I think, especially when you compare it to India or Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, where it is, it is like misogyny is written into the basic doctrine. Mm-hmm. When did you, uh, how old were you when you uh, migrated or moved to? I was 21 okay. and I'm now almost 37. And um, you went here for call, or you went there for college. I, I'm assuming you're in uh, Britain, London. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in London. Yeah. Okay. Um, my mom's actually from here. She's Indian um, ethnically, but she grew up in the UK. So um, it was very easy for me to come here. And when we were little, we spent a lot of time here. Um, and it just it was easier for me to come here, and I kind of. I felt I was being suffocated in India. I think as someone who had fairly liberal parents, at least my mum is, being culturally British. Um, and, you know, growing up with the threat of rape is, is awful. It's scary. Um, and then there was trauma at home, which is pretty severe as well. So I kind of, I think the best way I can put it is I, I, I escaped to hear and then I kind of put myself back together again. Basing, uh, going without having to go into the trauma specifics, I wonder how that's informed uh, your understanding of psychodynamic therapy or therapy. And with with the thought in mind of eventually uh, kind of describing to us why you think so-called wokeness or woke therapy is antithetical mm. to a therapeutic practice or getting better. Yeah, so I think there's, a, there's um, in very broad strokes, I think human beings are wired to overcome adversity. Um, we're wired to strive and to get our teeth into obstacles and to move forward. And I don't think trauma is the best way to achieve that. But I think, um, you know... <laughs> like the pain post- is just the weakness leaving your body school of... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, that's crap. But um, I think what trauma can do for you, if you're lucky enough to get help, which not everybody can access, unfortunately, it should be a basic healthcare, healthcare thing, um, is post-traumatic growth is a very real phenomenon. And if you think of your kind of capacity as a person for what you can tolerate, um, you'd call that your window of tolerance. Um, which is sort of like a trauma model uh, term of art. And I think post-traumatic growth widens your window um, so significantly, especially if you've had pretty extreme, what they call big T trauma. Um, 
uh, that's what I think, and I think that's been my that's been my first hand experience. It's been with I used to work with um, refugees from Afghanistan, and compared to them, my experience is really nothing. Um, mm. They, I mean, things like walking in the streets and being raped by the Taliban, being just grabbed into a building, and not having water, so you have to go foraging for water for your family as a five-year-old child, working, and they're some of the most inspirational, strong, good-humoured people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And then when you look at that in comparison with what we're seeing in the West, which is some of the most ungrateful, angry, fragile group of people, and, and they've not had anything, sorry, of the same sort of experience. And I think something happens to human beings when you have too much comfort. I think you start to malfunction. I'm not mm. sure exactly what it is, but there's something that I've started to feel recently. And the conditioning of young people into postmodernist thinking, I think that causes mental health problems. Um, well, could you define uh, what you mean by postmodernist thinking? Deconstructing things. So something okay. that I notice a lot of my clients who've been to university in Europe or, Amer- or North America, let's say, um, they learn a lot about applied postmodernism, which we call wokeness colloquially at university. And one of the, th- the things they do is, um, James Lindsay was talking about this in, I think, the Great, great Awakening talk he did recently, where they like to play with ideas. And when you upend somebody's sense of reality, you do something really profound to their mind because hmm. you're, you're taking away from somebody um, that down is down and your feet are there and you're grounded and this is what the world is, this is the truth and you can hang your hat on it. That's taken away from a vast sort of um, swathe of people and they, they, nothing has meaning. And that's a feature of, of clinical depression. Mm. where the world literally becomes meaningless and and pointless. And you have this, uh, and you know, affective disorders like anxiety and depression, they're, they're rising, the numbers are rising. And I don't think this is an insignificant factor. Hmm. It's almost as if uh, what we term wokeness is a uh, trauma inflation regimen. Where yeah. uh, it, the first the first step of postmodern thinking is to upend reality to to kind of pull it all apart, and then the yeah. way that you glue it all to back together is through oppression or privilege, yeah. which is negative oppression or the opposite of oppression, in a way. Well, it's it's superimposing into people. So if you think of the ideology as a matrix, you're putting a matrix into somebody's head, and now they're not able to. Think that it's like a cage. And all their thinking happens in this cage. Hmm. And, you know, it's like, um, it's very fundamentalist. So if you're white and you're male and you're straight, well, you're at the bottom of this hierarchy. And then the higher you go up, the more intersectionality points you have. You're the top of the hierarchy. So I I was having a conversation before um, Biden picked his vice president choice with with a North American therapist. And I said, I wonder who he's going to choose. And I hope it's somebody that offsets him really well so that he's a good a good choice to vote for and her response was i hope he chooses a black woman and i just thought based on what what why why would why wouldn't you want him to choose the best person for the job why somebody who's black and a woman it's such an arbitrary thing Hmm. um i can't even remember how i got to this why why would you why would you not think that way why do you not think that way? That he should choose a black woman. Well, just why are you not woke? What What is it in your experience or your philosophy that causes you to resist that? Um, so one, I grew up in um, a very oppressive culture. And I say oppressive um, in both senses of the word. It was, it felt suffocating and it was oppressive in that way. Um, and you are a lot of arbitrary rules are imposed upon you. So girls can do this and girls can't do that. And um, this is how when you talk about gender roles, that's a great place to study them. Or patriarchal cultures are a great place to actually look at gender roles. Um, And I never quite 
fit what girls are meant to do and it always felt like I was wearing a costume and I think from when I was quite small um I'd question these rules so I was I was the the um the troublemaker asking questions and being difficult and not not listening and um and I think which means not complying basically not complying I think I'm (laughs) when you look at my big five scores I think they indicate why I'm not woke um, I'm very comfortable with being disagreeable um, and asking questions, not being horrible, but I'm not just going to listen to you because you said a thing. Um, mm-hmm. And my neuroticism is quite low, so I, I don't really mind if people don't like me and I'm very open, so I want to explore ideas. Um, and I didn't, I didn't comply and I didn't fall in line and I have to give my mum credit for that because she was like that too. She didn't comply and she didn't fall in line. Um, and yeah, my, my image of my mom is always, instead of like all the beige ladies being nice and drinking tea, that was my mom with like long red nails, lead, red lipstick and, and like withering one liners. So it was quite a good, um, I kind of want to interview her now. <laughs> oh, she's really cool. You'd like her. Um, and but you were you were given every opportunity or or um, incentive to be a deconstructor, and you were yeah. deconstructing. But that doesn't go. But you stop at some point. It seems stop like. at some point, and the point is the point has to be sense. Like you can't. There's a point where you start deconstructing, and you you lost contact with reality. And I don't know whether that's. Um, Another factor could be the amount of therapy I've had because of the stuff I've been through. And one of the things that talented therapists do, and I've been lucky enough to see talented therapists, is they evidence test your beliefs. And that's sort of a CBT thing. Um, cognitive what is behavioral. that? What's that comprised so, of? Okay, so for example, if I say, well, Benjamin just looked at me slightly strangely. And I think that means he thinks this interview is going terribly. So I could... When you evidence test that in your head, you can kind of look at it as, well, are you making meaning of that because you're feeling about yourself in a certain way? Or is that corresponding with reality? Do you have any evidence to support this belief? Um, And I think that's something that um, I do a lot with my own clients and probably with myself a fair amount. Um, I had a massive blow up argument with my partner (laughs) and I'm still kind of um we're still in the aftermath of it and I was saying Mm -hmm. to myself earlier like you know I've I've I'm labeling him all these things in my head but I'm gonna leave room for the fact that I might be making meaning based on how hurt I'm feeling right now Mm -hmm. so that is constantly um making contact with reality and I think that's something that I don't know whether I do it naturally I don't know what exactly it is but it's something that i've always had i think um i think even when i was young and things were being perpetrated against me that shouldn't Mm. have happened um the thing that got me through was somehow i knew it was wrong okay yeah yeah that's kind of what i wanted to ask you about you said earlier about pakistani people who or Afghanistani people yeah. who have uh, yeah. been through so much, and yet they yeah. are very resilient, very positive, very yeah. kind. It seems like there's a framework that's not necessarily attached to what is. It's the aughts. It's, there's some mm-hmm. sort of cultural mythology or ethical mm-hmm. system or maybe a religion that allows people to have a relationship with what is, but still is, is a heuristic ultimately well you have to have a relationship with what is if you're not if you're um so i think yeah that that's a that leads me on to being in the third world you're constantly in contact with the reality because you have to think about your basic needs all the time Okay. okay and i think that might be what it is so um afghanistan is in much worse shape than india um india is starting to become quite was was developing quite quickly and um, but Afghanistan, of course, is, is beleaguered by wars and all sorts of things and internal infighting, the Sunni and the Shia and all that. So the people there have had to 
fight for survival in a way that even I can't understand. Um, and all of these clients that I've had, that I worked with then, um, they are very, all of them had, all of them worked from when they were quite young. All of them, when, when I say young, I mean under, under 10, in single digits, they were working in, and contributing to their families. How can you not be in touch with reality if that's how, if that's how you grew up? That's contact with reality that most of us will never understand. And so with that contact, that extreme amount of contact with basic needs, mm. what do you see as the next step up? How do you, or what, what are some of the themes or the, the, the constants of a good philosophy that could withstand uh, being so removed from reality that you're constantly warm and, and well-fed, you know, like... What are good values that can, you know, keep you pointed towards reality as you scale up from that? Um, I think they sound really, really old fashioned, but <laughs> I think the values that I like are things like courage and honor hmm. and doing the right thing, even if nobody's watching you. I think all of these, I don't know where, where these, the, all the Indian meta narratives teach you this sort of stuff. So I'm sure I assimilated some of that. And then all the Disney films, they all are, um, mm. they all follow the same sorts of meta narratives. And I watched lots of those as a kid. And I'm sure I assimilated from that as well. But um, I think an easier way to answer that question is to look at what I see when I, when I see people I grew up with, even myself, my family, is that that contact with reality and you're not encouraged to be fragile. It's no one says to you, oh, you're crying. That's really valid. And you should just cry a lot more. No one said there's no, there's no narrative like that. That's not a culturally acceptable thing to say. You might be soothed. You might be given a hug and given a cuddle, but you're encouraged to pull yourself back together. I don't think that, that that's the same here. I wonder where that went, that that kind of esteem-based philosophy or ethic, trophy prizes and stuff. Well, it's almost, yeah, I hate participation trophies. Um, (laughs) It's almost like um, the stiff upper lip, man up rhetoric had a response and the pendulum swung too far. Um, And then you have people like, I'm going to assume you as well, then are now countering the the pendulum having swung that far because it's Hmm. it's not healthy to tell people that it's okay to have no meaning in your trauma and be upset for the rest of your life this is not a healthy this is not going to help people heal and this definitely comes from i can see there's been a creep of postmodernism into therapy and i don't know whether it's because Therapy is less scientific than psychology and whether therapy is closer to social work and social work is definitely in the Venn diagram of grievance studies and other humanities, mm. whether it's close enough that it, 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 it filters through. Um, but all of the woke ideals of identity first um, instead of humanity and um, overvalidating, coddling, it's, it has um, insidiously burrowed its way into therapy, but it's at the cost of the client. Hmm. And yeah. the practitioners and the clients don't know that. I mean, just judging from the brief amount of uh, explanation of your experience you're saying, but I see this replicated over and over again. Like I said, one defining feature of wokeness is a extreme intolerance for questioning or anything that goes against itself. So it seems like this um, fundamentalist uh, proselytizing and very puritanical kind of movement uh, is, is is it's weakening your practice. And, and I know that from speaking with other therapists, too. How do you see that being countered? Is it just individual after individual standing up and getting canceled or risking that? Or is there is there a way to challenge this stuff um, because it is so fraught that, that it can't resist any challenges or it has to attack any challenges? Um, I think it has to be both. I think um, 
therapists who have retained some common sense need to start speaking up and and speaking up courageously and saying do your worst cancel me make a fast scream and shout but i'm not going to stop talking about this <laughs> and um and i think we also need um our regulatory bodies to be less spineless because they have all cowered to wokeness so what the apa is recently their recent statements even um my regulator which is the british uh, association of counseling and psychotherapy um has completely uh changed focus and recently even had us all vote on whether we should use intersectionality as a modality hmm. for clients how would that um, work i don't know i like they didn't it didn't pass thankfully i think okay yeah i think we're not as woke as you guys are yet but it's it's growing in the dark here just like it did there <laughs> and you know we're lucky that people like yourself and james lindsay and helen pluckrose and lots of others um speak about it but people need to listen to you and you know that that's kind of the problem i think people dismiss it like oh this is just a it's never going to happen here it's going to be a conspiracy theory um mm. these people are sort of alarmists i think it's very easy for people to dismiss difficult things like that but if you look around you there's evidence of it everywhere so you have to you have to pay attention and you have to be a little bit courageous i think that's going to be the answer it's to stop stop going along with the crowd and and say what you see not what you're being told to say what are the outcomes you see for clients who are given the woke model of therapy what what are some of the uh you know signs that they exhibit and coping mechanisms that they adopt well they don't cope very well they don't cope very well because then the um one of the rhetorics that i hate is that they're now problematizing resilience and they're saying you shouldn't have to be resilient because the world is oppressive which is why you have to be resilient so the oppression should be removed and then you can just be as you are what kind of stupid bollocks is this to tell people i don't even like, understand how that <laughs> what that even means like are they they're advocating people like regress to a larval stage of development is that what it is i mean yeah it's so i saw a post from a therapist today who said you don't have to find meaning in your trauma and i saw that and i thought well that's idiotic um you know the ba- the basic one of the biggest protective factors that stops the development of ptsd after trauma exposure is the ability to make meaning of what happened to you um so this completely counters actual scientific research or psychological research and um they say things like so you might have heard this aphorism which is the wound is where the light gets in hmm. um and which is a nice it's a nice thing i mean it's not it's not going to change your life but yeah it's nice and um there was a therapist who took that and wrote <laughs> crossed it out and wrote on the bottom the wound is where it hurts or or uh, the wound is where it really fucking hurts so she crossed out the wound is where the light gets in so again you know you're encouraging people to just spend their time thinking about how much they hurt mm-hmm. how hard they've had it um how yeah. difficult life is how oppressive life is okay instead of helping them reframe to their competencies and their abilities to overcome so it's it's almost like instead of going through an alchemical process of turning your pain into something that has a higher order of significance yes. or relevance you magnify and concentrate that pain so it never yeah. changes so you you do have meaning but that mm. pain i guess just eventually just everything turns into that pain or every you see that pain constantly everywhere and then you mm-hmm. have to ask well what does that do to you psychologically how do you then behave and how do you feel about life then uh, when when yeah. you follow that path well you're it's a mixture of exactly what you described concentrating that pain um and then you're just sitting there coddling it like here's my pain and I'm here I am sitting with it 
and aren't I doing some great healing work? Well, no, you're fucking not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's, it's, well, what did I just do? I think I opened a second window of you. I, I can't. <laughs> so I want to question, what do you mean by meaning then? What, what are, what do you, what is the process of turning trauma into meaning what what do you mean by meaning and what is the what are some of the processes of that well we make meaning in so many different ways everyone has a different way to make meaning of the world some people use religion some people use spirituality it's a funny word because it you know it's implicit meaning so um or there are people that kind of believe in in you know philosophically nihilism or absurdity or um stoicism so we have different different frameworks and you can use your framework intelligently to make meaning of what happened to you and i do think there's some truth in some of the stuff that um therapists say like you know of course everything because there's a lot of what they call toxic positivity um Mm. and you know you can say yes of course not everything happens for a reason you can't say that a child being assaulted happened for a reason that's you're an idiot if you say that but um but you can make meaning of it in in terms of the the stoic way would be to prevail or endure um if you look at it from the the tradition i grew up in which is sikhism it would be that happened but you know god is with you god is supporting you and there's different ways you bolster yourself up that undergird you and that, that support you in in con- being confronted with the world and being confronted with painful, difficult things. But we've removed, especially in the Western world, religion is now sort of it's passé. Um, no one cool is religious, <laughs> and it's not. Well, Kanye is trying to bring it back. Yeah, <laughs> he's pretty cool. He's not, he's not doing a good job though, is he? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. He started a Sunday church service. I don't know how. Which it's... is quite nice. That is quite. Yeah. It's quite a nice idea. But, um, so what do people have to undergird them? That some sort yeah. of a, a buffer or a defense when you're being confronted hard with the world. So like all these people who've completely fallen to pieces over 2020 because they've never seen anything like it. You know, um, 2020, uh, the news show? Yeah. The, this year. Oh, okay. The year. Um, okay. Sorry. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> so this year has been a bit of a, you know, clusterfuck. Yeah, it's um, a test, right? Or uh, it's proof that the world is woven out of oppression and, and uh, nihilistic. Uh, I, d- I, don't, I don't know what it is. And I can't, I can't, I'm not going to pretend I know what it is. But I, what I can say is growing up, with a bomb going off in the local market or the power being gone for three days when it's 50 degrees outside or, you know, being beaten to shit in your house or um, all, all those things. So then a year like this happens, you're like, yeah, this shit happens in the world sometimes. You, know, you, can't, you can't fall to pieces over it. You have to carry on. And I think that's, the, that's what we're taught in the East, which is that you have to carry on. Whereas that's not what, what's being taught to young people now. They're being taught that, no, you don't carry on. You stop and you attend to your pain at the cost of everything else. And I don't think that's very healthy. Well, there's, there's, there's two ways. You, you stop and you attend to your pain, but you also join the mob in order to defeat the systemic pain. So it's at once your individuality is defined by this pain, but society itself is also defined by that pain. And so yeah. you kind of skip the, uh, I'm going to, Jordan Peterson, or whoever said, clean your room, instead of working on yourself, building yourself up, you, you mm-hmm. leap from that individual pain into this kind of this mob, and then you go through and try to change the structure. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. And, and, and the people that are attracted to this tend to be people who, you know, have that attachment um, style hmm. that they want to be in a group. I mean, they talk about collectivism all the time, which I think is really funny because none of them lived it. And it's not sun, sunshine and roses. And mm. you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily want to be. I I left collectivism because I hate it. Um, I think individualism is, for me personally, far superior. Um, and they form this homogenized group identity where 
you don't have to be an upright individual with a fully formed, robust personality and who's completely self-sufficient and takes personal responsibility because you now have a group to prop you up. Mm. So there's something going on there. It's this sort of this, the psychology of group dynamics, something strange is happening there as well. Mm. And, um, and what you're being fed all the time especially when you're under the age of, is it 27 or 28, when your prefrontal cortex fully develops, these things, they form your the way you make meaning of the world. So that's their meaning-making structure. Privilege is original sin. And then oppression, the sort of mystical force that's keeping us down. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a client who lives in Europe who recently said to me, the reason I'm depressed is because of the patriarchy. Like, no, you're not. That's ridiculous. Um, how do you talk somebody out of that then? Um, how you so, you so again start evidence testing? Well, what do you mean by the patriarchy in France? Well, of course she couldn't give an answer to that. And then, um, what what instances have you had uh, with patriarchal men that have caused you to get depressed? And if are you sure that that inst- you know instance you're describing is because he was um, you know acting out of some kind of patriarchal oppression, or what else could have been going on? You start to open them up to other possibilities, but it's like deprogramming somebody who's in a cult. It's really difficult work. Well, it's difficult work, but also I, I think it could be also difficult to, or that the difficulty can be conflated by, you know, they being offered all this other affirmation therapy yeah. elsewhere. Like, well, you come to me and I'll, I'll affirm your pain. I, I won't say that that's where the light gets in. That's That really fucking hurts, girl. You're, you're so powerful in your tears, I guess. And then how do you convince somebody that actually, well, if you look if you look where that leads you, I guess that's what you have yeah. to do. Well, if you look where that leads you, uh, is that what you really want? If, if, we, if you want me to give you what you want, what do you really want, I guess? You... Well, there's some people that are invested in staying upset and down because there, there can be... Um, and I, I'm not, not at all speaking of people who are, have been legitimately victimized or people that are living in actual oppressive systems like Palestine or, you know, Bangladesh or whatever. But exactly as you described, there's, there's a, um, you're celebrated in the group. You're, um, the more you sort of perform this virtue and this pain, the more you raise your status and then the more you attack other people that don't um, kind of live the way you've decided to live, which is why I think it's it's a fundamentalist zeal. Um, again, you're raising your status, so they're getting something out of it. They're getting it's. I mean, it's a big reward. Hmm. Socially, I guess more than personally, in the long run. Well. Being affirmed by other people and other people looking at you like um, you're special because of your color or your gender or your sexual orientation, that it seems to appeal to a certain kind of person. I think people that maybe don't feel very good about themselves, don't feel very good about who they are. I think I tweeted a few days ago about how identity characteristics aren't a replacement for a personality. Um, And that's how they're being used. Hmm. Was your personal cultivating a personality that anybody wants to be around and go to dinner with you? You have to, you have to work on yourself. You have to Hmm. be, um, you have to be, you know, truthful with yourself. You have to, take on some kind of undertake some kind of self-inquiry um and you know cultivate who you are as a human being more than just resting your laurels on well i'm brown and a woman and um you know i think i might be queer but i'm not sure you can't that's not yeah and it only works in one direction, as you've witnessed, as somebody who's the not-white, not-European woman. As soon as yeah. you disagree, you're out. You, you lose every yeah. point as soon as you disagree. So, Yeah, well, they call, they, I've been called anti-black, which um, is like, 
interested. I was actually called anti-black last night on Twitter. Um, I was trying to have, a, I was trying to engage a young woke woman in conversation, and um, she said, "Great, thanks to you retweeting me," because um, she came to my page to say something. And um, thanks to you retweeting me, I've been I've been opened up to lots of white opinions. Mm. And so I asked her. Um, I asked it's her like the no white blood it. cell of the uh, <laughs> to a bi- virus, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, I said to her, no one had ever told you that white people are evil and responsible for you know all the ills of the world, and. Um, would you say something like white opinions? Like, how would you feel if someone said to Because she, I think she was um, Latin. Um, how would you feel if someone said to us brown opinions? You know, does that, it was just, just gently evidence testing, just really, mm. really subtly, not trying to um, be patronizing in it. It's trying to walk that line because you can get a bit patronizing if you don't, if you're not careful. Um, and, she she couldn't have it and then even she put up um a link to some university which was saying that institutional racism is intentional and again so the this and i said to her, are you aware that these are all assertions that mm-hmm. this isn't none of this is proven and she said why do you think your assertion is more important than that of a black scholar and then i was sort of like well why did you bring it back to the why does the color matter yeah um why can the idea not stand on its own merit? And again, so even if that conversation went a little bit tits up, which it did, um, maybe these will leave the tiny seeds of questions in her head. And maybe it'll open up to a little bit of cognitive dissonance that she won't ignore. don't know. But maybe. There's something you said earlier that I wanted to unpack a little bit. You said that from your Sikh background you said something about the idea of god being with you yeah there there's a subtle difference between god god intends this to happen to me rather than yeah. god is with me through this thing could you could you talk about that or that philosophy yeah. so sikhism i mean of all the religions i could have been born into in india because they're all very dogmatic and ideological i'm really glad it was sikhism because it was um formed about 300 years ago in response to the Hindu and Muslim infighting. So um, the person that founded Sikhism, he took the firstborn son of all Hindu and Muslim families and formed Sikhism to kind of be this secular answer to this religious, these religious clashes. Hmm. And so in our, in our doctrine, it says women are equal to men. Um, community is really important. We don't do um, no meaningless lit rituals, no idol worship. Um, so you don't go sit in a church and think you're a good person. Um, service or worship is actually being a good per- being a good human being. Hmm. So, um, for example, it's very common that all um, Sikh temples, they're called gurdwaras, are run by um, like the the community that goes there. And that's your service to other people. Everyone's equal. Every human being's equal. So um, we have a free kitchen in every Gurdwara that's open to everyone. It doesn't matter what your faith is or your gender or anything. Everyone's welcome. And everyone sits on the floor together. And I think the scripture literally says a beggar and a king sit side by side and there's, there should be no dis, you know, differentiation. So... Um, most of what I know about is from my grandmother, and she she was my protective factor growing up. Um, and she mm. is very stoic. And Sikhism is very stoic. Like the, the philosophies really intersect. Um, and that's what she told me. So she couldn't always protect me from everything. But the thing that I was always told is that God is with you, and God will protect you, and God will be with you. I wasn't told this is happening because God wanted it to happen to you. Yeah. I was never ever told that. Hmm. And that's uh, that, the, the way you describe it is very it, it's very similar to Stoicism, but also like the liberal values, the secular values, yeah, like equality under God or equality under the law. Yeah. Did that kind of um, do you know the history where where how those ideas like were pronounced by the uh, the first dude or the prophet? The first I don't dude, know the guru. <laughs> Um, so 
yeah, it was it was in response to what they thought was going wrong in India 300 odd years ago. And um, so even in we have a community of, of not just patriarchs, but matriarchs. Women are very strong in the Sikh community. Um, and <laughs> kind of a joke about women in the Sikh community smacking their husbands with rolling pins and stuff like that. But it's, um, it's yeah, it, it is very, now that you say that, it's really obvious. It is very much about liberal values, equality, gender equality is a massive thing. Like all in India, not all girls have access to education unless you're sick, then you have okay. to be educated. Okay. So, wow. so it's very much about liberal values, about stoicism, about common sense. That's really important. And um, one of the stereotypes of our community is that we work hard, but we play harder. So, or, um, you know, we're not teetotal, we drink, we gamble, we do all the fun things, but be a good human being. Mm. So it's kind of a cooler religion. Yeah, it sounds really cool. Well, yeah. Is it? Is it generally, um, does it get along with the other religions? In, in yeah, India? It's, kind of the, it's kind of the one that does. Everyone likes the Sikhs. Oh, okay. Is it? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. We tend to be quite, like the stereotype of us is that we're quite jovial. The, the friendly business guy won't rob you, but sort of. he will, he will yeah. bet pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. And also, sort of, if you look at the caste system, we're the second caste down. So um, we're the warrior caste. So there are four castes in India. The top caste, which is like the class Brahmin. system here. but So the Brahmins, then the Kshatriyas, which is us, which are the warriors and the defenders. And then you have, like, the sort of tradespeople and the money lenders. And then you have the people that do the menial jobs. Um, Retail so, workers. <laughs> you said that there's a class system in yeah. London. Could you describe that? Or, um, or I guess in the West, like what do you see as the caste system that we're operating under? Well, you seem to have, well, here it seems to be a class system that is, um, it's different in England, I think, because in England, yeah. birth makes a difference to your class. Was it seems like to me not that I know I don't understand it in depth about North America, but it seems financial, and it seems like um, like the working class of the people that do all the blue collar work and that struggle and live paycheck to paycheck, and the middle classes, sort of therapists, social workers, normal job people, and then um, your elites seem to be um, well the rich people. Yeah. Yeah. Is that sort of how it is? It's it's interesting because if you actually look at it the blue collar the traditionally pictured blue collar worker makes more money than the uh than anybody except for the elite, you know, the plumber, the garbage mm. man, um, you know, the, the union worker, stuff like that. They they actually do make really good money uh okay. more than the social worker, but the social worker, the bougie social worker thinks of themselves as a better yeah. class of person because they're helping the poor person or, or because they have the right ideals. And that's the interesting intersectionality uh, with uh, between wokeness and class. It seems to be a way of insulating the bourgeois people, insulating themselves from the, uh, you know, the person who's more tied to reality, who actually makes the world run uh, yeah. kind of thing in a way. Yeah. That is really interesting because um, it's that, uh, that academic gloss that you think make, puts you at a higher status in the world mm. somehow. And mm. really it just makes you a bit more of a, like, I always think of academics as pontificators. <laughs> Quite good at pontificating. <laughs> but how many academics make things happen in the way that blue collar workers do? Not yeah. many. Yeah. And, and that is reflected in their ideas where they, uh, a lot of these academic theories are never tested against reality and they are designed in such a way that they ignore reality or deconstruct reality. And that's what we have with wokeness, with these ideas, these critical theory ideas breaking out of the academy. Like, like with my, my study 
being Evergreen State College, being what happened there, being that these intersectional critical theories went critical. They went critical. Mm -hmm. They took over the uh, institution. They drove it into the ground. Everybody who was on the side of them completely ignored the evidence, completely ignored how that made them look, how that made them feel, how that made them behave, because for whatever reason, they can't look at what they caused. Um, and and I, I fear that that's kind of the what we're gonna what we're seeing is that built into this ideology isn't just an ignoring of reality, but a visceral attacking of anything that would make you look at what what it's causing yeah. you to do. And and I guess that's kind of what I'm seeing in in how you saw people behaving on Instagram. Mm. Well, what's the state of Evergreen now? Uh, they're at fifty percent. Of where they were, uh, they're they're uh, just kind of hobble, hobbling along and waiting on that government money that um, will, of course, come to them because uh, they are ideologically aligned with the current governance governance uh, in Washington. It's all de- yeah. Democrats up and down the board, so that they think the right way, so they'll get enough money. But um, but the actual reality is that they completely lost. They completely lost their credibility as an institution of education. Uh, And I think that because they didn't actually make good on that, like and say, we we messed up, this this stuff went overboard, and these are the reasons why, and this is how we're going to modify what we mean by equity, what we mean by diversity, what we mean by inclusion, and tying that to actual academic prowess or uh, the pursuit of education and and thoughtfulness and uh, other virtues and stuff other than just inclusion and diversity and it's just you know as an as an indian person i just thought jesus christ imagine if students in india overran a university like that and the antisocial behavior is unimaginable unimaginable it's absolutely unimaginable they would get like the police would come in and probably beat them up Mm. That's probably yeah. what would happen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nothing like that. I couldn't. And just the things they did to Brett Weinstein, like locking him in the building and searching cars, is just sort of it. It beggars belief, and especially when he was on their side. That's what it's just the hardest thing to understand. Yeah. And the fact that the academy is looking at all this horrifying antisocial behavior and saying, you know, "We support you." Yeah. Insane. That's kind of, uh, I, I don't think that they have a choice because if they didn't accept them, then they, they would have to review their actual belief system. <laughs> and like, they, I th- that's, that's my own prejudiced bias on the thing. It's like, you guys don't look at this. You don't criticize yourself because if you did, you would have to admit you're wrong. And then the whole yeah. tower of cards collapses. Yeah. Where did you yeah. uh, uh, do your education? Was it in uh, London? My or first was degree in- was in India. Um, I went to art school. Oh, got a BFA in painting. Um, It's completely. Yeah, did a lot of different things. Did music then, and then I did my therapist training at the University of Roehampton in London. They have a pretty good psychology program. So, um, and then I did. Before that, I had to do um, what they call national vocational qualifications, just to make sure I met the standards. So I did those at, at a few different community colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of different places. And why? What prompted you to do this work, do therapy? Then, um, I think initially to work out what was going on with me, because mm-hmm. I couldn't. I didn't. I didn't. Und- I didn't have an understanding or a language yet that um, heavy trauma will fuck you up. <laughs> but there was something <laughs> wrong with me, so um, that's what I did. And I went off and um, started doing it. And then uh, I always found the skills practice really fun, really gratifying. And um, I did quite well when it came to clinical placements and stuff like that. And. I don't know, just something in me just said, well, just stick to stick to this, get good at this, sharpen your skills. Um, and I did. And I do really enjoy it. But I think I'm finding more and more that um, it is, I might, I might go on to do a doctorate. I am really considering that because it's, it's the, the research and the science that's getting me, um, mm. is more intellectually stimulating to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
especially with therapy being taken over by wokeness. That's unfortunate. That That's what's kind of happening in the academy. It's that um, it's becoming such a discouraging place for free thinkers, for independent thinkers to exist within, that it's going to mm-hmm. lead to more and more uh, of the best people just going away or the people who are actually benefiting the clients or benefiting the students are getting either chased off or just shutting down uh, you know, yeah. their, their free thought. It seems like it's kind of a cliche that that those who need psychology study psychology. Do you think that there are things in place that show like, okay, this isn't just about you. This is about uh, you actually being good at this. Um, I think those who I think that's really true. They they kind of talk about this wounded healer trope, which I think is just like a bit of a poncy way of saying I'm anti-special I'm so wounded and now I heal people it's just a bit it's a bit narcissistic um, and a bit silly um, what I'm grateful about here is that you can't qualify unless you have 36 hours of personal therapy each year that you train so you okay. come out of it a very sorted grounded person so when you go on to see clients you're not taking your own crap with you and um Whereas I don't think a lot of the rest of the world does that. And it should, it should be the case, really, because if you're rooting around in somebody's head with all their mental health stuff, you should be sure you've got yours um, uh, well dealt with. And, you know, like, especially as a psychodynamic therapist, you, you work a lot with transference and counter-transference. How could, you, how could you even identify what that is if you don't know what your stuff is really mm. intimately? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that that's really uh, shown in uh, the Instagram healer, wounded healers uh, community. I, I I dipped into that. I'm like, oh my god, are you serious? One of my <laughs> one of my frequent guests is a licensed professional counselor, uh, Sasha. I don't know if you know her, but you guys would totally get along. Okay. But you know, so I look into what she's dealing with, and I'm like, are it's just bunch of mainly women compounding everybody's pain and their own. And then, so whether or not critical theory is useful academically, when you put it into a psycho, psychotherapy uh, situation, it like, it wreaks havoc on individuals. Well, we now have the rise of the critical therapist. What is that? That could be worse than that. I made it up. But like a okay. critical theorist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the critical like therapist. Critical theorist, the critical Critical therapies. You yeah. should write the book. I might have to write a book, actually. Um, a publisher <laughs> got in touch with me recently about that. I was like, do I have this? I really want to do it, though. I want to, like, read them. <laughs> it's probably not a good attitude, but I really want to. Um, I think I think there's an actual need for that. And I think you would actually have... I think that there's a need not only for people to speak up, like you were saying, but, but for good grounded literature, critiquing and criticizing this stuff mm-hmm. will really help out those moderate voices, those independent thinkers who are staying silent right now. Yeah. And and that's the thing, the people who are um, like licensed associate counselors, so they, they're dependent on um, the person supervising them who could be the wokest person in the world. Mm. So they have to be quiet because they're dependent on them to get their licensure because you have such a different system there. Mm. And I know quite a few people who, who privately get in touch and say, I really agree with you and um, thank you for talking about this. But they, they don't because they will lose their, their means of survival. Hmm. Yeah. So what what are uh, some tips that you have Let, uh, let's say uh people uh people's behavior online what do you or or um the way that that information reaches us online what are some good coping mechanisms for communication and ingestion of information It's so bloody difficult audience? because I'm I'm as addicted as anybody else Okay so well, it's so, well, it's well. so <laughs> difficult when it comes to like ingesting the information because you know, in between sessions, I have 10 minutes to go to the loo and write my note. I go to the loo mm. and I look at Twitter. That's, yeah. that's what I actually do. My notes get done at the end of the day. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult because the app is designed to keep you on there and keep you scrolling. So, you know, they've designed these things really cleverly. Like a lot of psychologists use their powers for evil and, and got us all hooked onto them. Um, but when it comes to communicating online, I'd say 
you you have to bring the social contract online because I think that's something that we haven't done and that's why antisocial behavior is so rampant um because you know walking down the street you wouldn't say to somebody oh you you fucker or something would you unless you want to get the shit beaten out of you mm-hmm. and you can't you can't do that online either you have to bring the real world social contract online and treat people the way you would as if they were in front of you and just we just have to have to get better at that um assume less ask clarifying questions if you need to and and there's absolutely no reason to engage with every person that has a differing opinion i think i wonder what it what's going on with us collectively that we go online to discharge this frustration and mm. and built up of something and feel the need to find people who don't agree with us and just start a fight like what is hap- just walk away mm. can, it's fine <laughs> you can just walk away it's it's, it's well, you say that, but I see you holding your ground, and I don't mean that as a oh, criticism. Do. You hold your ground, and, and I think that that's really refreshing. One of the reasons I was attracted to your account and wanted to speak with you. So, how? What's the, the proper way to hold your ground then, or what are some tips on on drawing well, I lines? I think as a person, I don't suffer fools gladly, and I get okay. quite quickly annoyed by somebody behaving like an idiot i think it's again with the social contract it's very galling when you adhere to the social contract and other um, contract and people just flout it that, that can be really annoying um but i think i'm quite firm on my boundaries and what i will and will not tolerate from other people mm-hmm. and um i'm not like i find a lot of therapists treat other people like as if they're customer service agents which I, I'm, that's not who I am. So, mm. so I see someone leave a comment to a therapist saying, I think everything you said is a pile of shit and you're an idiot. You know, something like near, near enough that. And the therapist will say, that's so interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> Whereas, you know, like that's just not how I'm ever going to respond to a person. Um, and it's always going to be, if you, you, I will say to someone, if you ever come to my page and speak to me like that again, you will get blocked. Um, like I'm very clear, so there's no confusion um, about where I stand. Um, the cu- customer service model is ruining academia, and I, I see the same thing with uh, therapy. It's ru- it's ruining it. Why uh, a, ther- a therapist isn't a glorified friend or a handholder holder or a customer service agent? It's somebody who's supposed to deal with truth. It's supposed mm. to help somebody find truth and find out what's happening for you you don't have to behave like a you know telesales customer service person it's really odd and again i noticed that's much more north american but i find younger therapists behave like that here as well Mm. exactly like that um and also seem to think that there's a way that you have to be as a therapist like an endless well of empathy well of course you don't because you're a human being and I don't behave like a therapist when I'm not with a client. I behave like myself. Um, and I find that there's this sort of um, a costume. We put on the therapy costume. Now I'm a therapist and I'm, I'm um, not, not phased by anything. And you can insult me and I'll just listen to you. It's, it's yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. I do have to say that you do have a therapist demeanor. When, when I speak with a lot of therapists... Yeah. Uh, they have the, there's this silence or this really quiet way of speaking. Sometimes it really creeps me out because <laughs> I, can, I can sense something behind there that's being suppressed. But yeah. I, 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 you, you are. I don't mean that. I, I probably shouldn't say this, but you kind of have this bull in a china shop uh, vibe to you, where where there's this there's this strength, but and yet everything is everything is delicate at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to tweet this later. I went on Benjamin Boyce's podcast and he called me a creepy bull in China. <laughs> not, not creepy. No, no, no. I'm saying when when I listen to psych, psychotherapists talking with one another, especially on podcasts, they have this yeah. really calm way of talking. That calmness can yeah. get a little creepy to me. I, I hear you being calm, but like you are not diminishing your strength at all. So oh, I, I'm not okay, calling you creepy. I'm saying that you you do have that therapeutic calmness in the room. Yeah. 
but but you're not holding back. You're you're attenuating. There's got to be some sort of uh, way to talk about it in in, in in terms of audio. But you're attenuating your volume to the circumstance, but the the, the signal is still very strong. Let me put it. I think that that's way. a compliment because I had to work yeah. really hard to get strong <laughs> and and to put myself back together. I think it might, it might have always been there because I think that's what mm. I come from. The people I come from are strong people. Um, but I definitely, definitely think as a therapist, there's no point being incongruent. Because again, I think you were meant to be dealing with truth. And um, I think the best way to make contact with another human being is, is to be authentic and genuine. You can't make real contact and build a real authentic connection, which I want to do with my clients, because for some of them, it's the first healthy relationship they've ever had. Hmm. You can't do that when you're being a proxy. Hmm. A proxy meaning? Yeah, a proxy sort of of yourself, like I'm going to now be my therapist self. Okay, yeah. Or, um, yeah, I think you kind of... I think you lose something really important and really integral there when you when you go in and you have this sort of patina of creepiness. <laughs> Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.